Amen. Say amen. That's right. We all know there are stupid questions. I'm going to ask you some this morning, though, that are of utmost importance. But I love the idea. I've asked some stupid questions. I've been in the fire service now for 20 years. I've heard some stupid questions. Um, I've probably should have asked a couple more stupid questions so I didn't make stupid mistakes. It's a lot harder to recover from a mistake than it is to recover from a stupid question. Case in point, I first got hired at the fire department. We had a couple vehicles there. I was feeling pretty good, going to go above and beyond. This was in St. Albans, so my buddies uh, all know this story that I still live next to, so that's always hard to deal with when it comes up. But I was going to go above and beyond. Truck needed fuel. Went over and got it, right? Pulled in, lined that thing up, put diesel in it, drove it back to the station. Time I got back to the station, it started spurting a little bit, a little, like, oh, man, okay. I got out of the car, I got out of the truck, and I do what most people do when they're in trouble. They call their dad, right, the mechanic. Hey, Dad, which one's really bad, gas and a diesel or diesel and a gas? He said, well, you put gas in a diesel, you just blew it up. Okay, so I made the lesser of the two evils then. I put diesel in a gas. And all I had to do was ask a stupid question. But you know what won the argument in my mind that day was this vehicle had a plug. And I had never seen a gas vehicle with a plug. I thought that was a surefire sign it was meant to be a diesel. So I put diesel in it, drove it back to the station, me and the guy that's now the chief laid under it for about three hours while we took a tank full of a gas-diesel mixture and pulled it off the vehicle, splashing it all over ourselves and whatever else it was getting on and had to drain it and fix it, and I didn't get fired. It was amazing, but it would have been a lot simpler just to ask one stupid question, right? One question, but instead, I followed along. This morning, we will not look at stupid questions. This morning, what you and I will look at with the story of, of Christ in the next couple passages will be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start there. And if we were going chronologically according to Scripture, I would get ready to start preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and we would just sit and marinate in it for about the next two years. But that's not what I'm shooting for. I want to see the life of Christ, and we'll come back to his teachings and the Sermon on the Mount uh, in the future. But right now, what I wanted to look at was... What is he doing? What about his life? What is he doing that you and I can see and mimic? Do you remember the five W's in, was it middle school? A teacher yell at me. Was it grade school when you learned that, the five W's, right? Who, what, when, where, why? Is it middle school, right? Investigative, uh, when, you were, when you were getting ready to write a paper, you had to ask all these questions. So it was five W's and one H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? If you answer those questions, your paper or whatever you're getting ready to do should be a lot better. I want to see in this passage, I want to answer those questions with you as we read through what Jesus is doing very early in his ministry, very early in his life of calling. So where have we been the last couple weeks? Well, we were talking about enjoying the life of Jesus, uh, having a better understanding of who he is. Why? Because that renewed understanding should make you and I want to share him. It should make you and I want to say the name more. That is vitally important. Nobody has a problem with God. It's when you start to talk about Jesus that everybody gets a little antsy. 
right? I believe in God, and everybody pats you on the back and says, well, that's great, just go on about your business. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and they're like, canceled. Bigot. Not friendly, not nice. But when you and I get to know him, we will not be able to go without saying the name. He is that good. He is that great. He is that worthy. We took a closer look of how our king does his work and who he uses to build his kingdom. We did that through the genealogy. We got a clearer picture of Jesus' enemy, the king's enemy. If the king has an enemy, I will have an enemy. And the closer I act like him and the more my life uh, 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 mirrors, almost like the moon at night, you know, it reflects the sunshine. The more my life looks like the moon and reflects that sunshine, the more the enemy will crop up. The more light I give out, the more the darkness will have to flee and it will push back. And so if I look at Jesus' enemy, I will also see my own. And then finally, it was, a, it was to have an ear to hear. The call of the king is what we talked about last week. And a couple of the ideas were just simply, you and I need to be walking with shrewdness as we navigate this world and illuminate everywhere your feet stand. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Walking through the hallways at your school, the kingdom of God is there. No matter your age, if you know him and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, everywhere your foot steps, the kingdom of God is there at your work. Whatever your hand finds to do, you are a picture and a messenger of God's kingdom. We should navigate with shrewdness as we illuminate the world around us. Why? Because some people are going to need the message and others are going to hate it. We carry the message that loves the broken, heals their infirmities, and breaks down every barrier. The message of Jesus Christ doesn't break down some barriers. It breaks them all down. Race, creed, past, Sin, failure, brokenness. The message you and I have breaks those barriers down. You forgive the unforgivable because God has forgiven it in you and then required me to do the same. Why do we love mankind around the world? Because they are made in the image of God and I am to love them as God does. The world needs a few more things that break down barriers instead of creates them. You and I are part of that plan. So today we ask questions. Like we're investigating something, trying to put together a paper. We're trying to put together a plan, an idea. You and I are going to ask some questions of the life of Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. The major question. The major question of Christian living is why? Jesus answers it for us even in just this one verse. What does he do? He sees the crowd and he knows they have needs. And he goes and he sits and he starts to teach. He starts to, these people are just flocking around him. He knows they have needs. And so because of that, he is going to stop and he is going to pay attention. The why is because of people. It's all about people. Your life, my life is all about people. We use stuff and we honor people, right? 
If we mix it up, we become very demonic. If we use people and love stuff, we get in trouble. Your life is not about achieve. It's not about how many letters you throw behind your name. It's not about the job that you're trying to get. It's not about the platform that you're trying to achieve. Your life, if it's being lived according to Christ, is about people. That's who we have to love. That's who God has given us to love. Jesus does what no earthly system can do. He sees both categories of humanity. Jesus loves the whole and he loves the individual. This is one of the things in all of human history that so many people have tried and never gotten right. I read, I think it was G.K. Chesterton or it might have been C.S. Lewis, but they made the comment that certain ideologies make much of man and little of men. Communism, socialism, these other political ideas around the world make much of man as a whole, but they make very little of individual men. That is a powerful statement. That is a powerful thought. And Jesus just wrecks that because he loves the whole and he loves the individual. And he shows that in his life. He loves the crowd and he loves each person in the crowd. He loves the people and he loves the person. He grieves with all, and he weeps with the one. And you and I see these stories as we walk through the biography of Jesus. We will see them over and over and over. But you remember these stories, especially the passage later in Matthew where he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over the city. And then we know the passage where he goes in when Lazarus is dead. And that passage to me is one of the most powerful passages in Scripture as to how much Jesus actually loves us. Why? Because he knows in the next five minutes he's going to raise a corpse. And yet the shortest verse in Scripture is seen in that passage and it says nothing but Jesus wept. Like, listen, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a friend, I'm a pastor. I like fixing problems. Right, like, And I don't want my kids whining or moping or being frustrated if we're going to fix the problem in the next five minutes. Like, Just hold tight. We got this. Like, Please stop crying. I'm going to fix it. This morning it was a sucker. Right, He got a cough drop that looked like a sucker, and that was a sucker, and he wanted the sucker. I'm like, dude, you got to eat some breakfast first. Like, right? I'm, 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 I'm lined up to be dad this morning. Right, We're going to do breakfast, and then you have a sucker. And this ain't even a sucker, so you don't even know what you want right now. I'm arguing with a two-year-old. Like, it's a cough drop. It's not going to even be very good. Give it to me. The concept of what Jesus does, he's going to fix a problem in a miraculous way, and yet he feels the pain of those that are there. He grieves with them so strong and so deeply that he weeps. He loves the group, and he loves the individual. And you and I, there are certain days that you really need to understand that truth more than others. He loves the state. He loves the country. He loves our church. And yet he loves me and he loves you and his attention is never diverted. He's never run out of time. He's never run out of resources. Jesus loves both. He came when he came, he showed his perfect humanity by being able to do both that so many others have tried but could never do. And when he reigns in eternity, it will show all of his glory. 
Because it's not going to change then just because you and I understand something differently because we can see more of what's going on because this flesh will no longer be there and my sin will no longer be a hindrance. It's not going to be any different there. He is sitting on the throne and yet wherever I will be in the universe, just have your mind blow up wherever you are in the universe and whatever's going on in eternity, the Lord is on the throne, Jesus there, and yet he is never going to leave you. He loves the group. And he loves the individual. So Jesus sits down and he sees the crowd and then the disciples come to him. Who are the disciples in that passage? That is the individuals. But he sees the crowd and he loves the disciple. That's a powerful, powerful truth. Turn over with me to chapter 7, verse 28. The Sermon on the Mount goes all the way through there. Like if you want to read the greatest sermon uh, ever preached, just go there, start reading. And when you get to this next verse, just stop. Like you've just read the greatest sermon ever preached. You're welcome. The Lord knows what he's doing. The truth and the how. 728 says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one with authority and not as their scribes. The crowds were astonished because he taught like one with authority. Authority. Jesus has an authority over truth. Okay? I need you to understand this. And then it comes out in his authority over circumstances. He has worked out the inner part first. What is truth? He is preaching it. He is teaching it. He knows it. We would say 2,000 years from then, he is truth. And so he is giving that truth. It is settled first. Then the circumstances follow. And I need you to understand that because this is the way it works in our lives as well. Have you settled what's true? If not, you are a double-minded man or woman, unstable in all your ways, is what James said. When we settle on what is true, you have a direction, you have an anchor, you have a foundation. But you have to settle it internally first. It has to be true in my life before the Lord will use it outside in circumstances around me. Jesus knows the truth. He teaches like one with authority. And the people see it, experience it, they feel it. We've made much of in our culture about the not having all the answers. I like humble people just as much as you do, right? Somebody that's wrong and they get corrected. But we've taken that and and really kind of perverted it a little bit to where if you stand on truth, now you are prideful or belligerent or hard to get along with. In gray areas, there can be movement. When you are wrong, say you are wrong. But listen, Christian, if you're living your life according to the Word of God and you're building off of that foundation, don't apologize. Don't act like it's not really true for anybody else. You and I need to be building our life off of that foundation, and we need to speak with authority. We need to live with authority. Now, here's the scariest part of this, and I've thought about it many times in my life because when you run your mouth as much as I do, you have an opportunity to be wrong a lot. And sometimes you get to the point 
where you're looking out, you're seeing what's going on, you're, you're, you know the Word of God, you know what the Word of God says, sometimes you and I are never going to be proven right this side of heaven. Why? Because the world's just not going to see it. And so we have to stand in truth even though there's not affirmation or confirmation from the outside just yet. But there will be many times when you and I stand on the truth of Scripture that it's just a matter of time. If you and I would just dig our feet in and hold on just a little while longer, confirmation and affirmation would come. But instead of living like people with authority, of authority, you and I live spineless at times. We live convenient at times. We live worried or fearful at times. Our world has plenty of people that are worried and fearful and don't know truth. What it needs from you and I are people of conviction and truth that we've built our whole life around. Those are the people that build the church. Those are the people that have changed the world. Jesus has an authority over truth. In John chapter 6, Jesus teaches a really hard message really hard like it is so uh, frustrating it is so offensive that people leave immediately like I've been here almost a decade I can't really remember a time that I had gotten that offensive where people just got up and left immediately it may have happened I, I just thought they were leaving for like a sporting event or something maybe they were mad John chapter 6 Jesus teaches a sermon and it is so potent people leave a couple minutes later in that passage, he looks at the disciples and, 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 and one of Peter's finer moments, he says, are you all going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. You see, Jesus is such an authority that there are those that will anchor everything to him. You see, you and I need to have conviction Convection is the idea of passing something forward. It's, it's very uh, strong in the fire service for uh, heat convection. It's pushing heat. Convection is our delivery. You need to be able to give, but you have to have conviction first before the convection, before the giving of. And then what happens is you and I see real conversion. But if there is no conviction, nobody's going to believe what you have to say. Why would they give their life to something that they know you don't? Why would they give their life to something that you know is just a self-help? They've seen your life. It's just a self-help. It's just a band-aid. It's not an anchor. We need conviction of what's true. We need to live and speak with authority. We need to convey that. We need the convection of passing that heat on. And you and I will see conversions. We'll see people come to Christ. Why? Because they will need what you have to offer. Here's the other side, though, and a lot of us aren't ready to deal with this if you have conviction and you deliver that message there will be consequences says what happens if i'm hated what happens if it's my own family what happens if it's my children what happens if it's my job what happens if it's my culture what happens if i say the wrong thing on social media and i get blasted and and they're trying to to hurt my family to hurt my church we have to live with authority You are right on so many things. If you are in the Word of God, if you are learning the Word of God, if you are building your foundation off of it and its principles as God has intended, 
through a totality of it, not one verse that you could build this off of and another verse that you could do this, not some vague concept of love that turns into permission in a million different ways. I am talking about the Word of God as God intended in its totality. If you're building your life off of it, you are right. And your family is blessed because of it. Your church is blessed because of it. And those that want nothing to do with it are also blessed because of it. Because when they come to the end of their rope and it all falls apart, they're not going to be looking at their friends or their family that have all the same issues. They're going to come for you. Your life is different. I believe in truth. I believe in Jesus' authority. The how is you and I are to live in truth. How are we to live out and to love these people with authority? Matthew 28 Right, The how and the mission. You're going to give in to the mission of God. And Jesus came and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has authority. He's given it to you, never leave you. That's the bookends of the Great Commission. That is so important, and we always miss it. In those bookends is the message, is the purpose, is the mission. Jesus says, authority is mine. It's been given to me. I'm granting it to you. I will never leave you. Never forget those two pieces of the Great Commission. Never forget one of the other pieces, which is teaching them all that I have commanded. Running through communities and doing evangelism conferences where people are not attached to a local church where spiritual fervor has been drummed up and maybe people have made decisions and then leaving them is not the Great Commission. It's not. It's a piece of it, but that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is discipleship, growing the body, making strong believers. In Acts chapter 4 is the passage we talked about. I think it was last week. Acts chapter 4, the disciples are brought forward and they're questioned about what's going on. And, and the passage says they knew they were unlearned fishermen, but they could tell they had been with Jesus. That kind of testimony comes from a life of authority. It was within them in truth and then it was coming out of them. Why? Because they had just healed a lame man that was 40 years old. He had been lame a long time. He had been broken a long time. And the disciples walked up and said, in the name of Jesus, you're healed. Well, the Pharisees freaked out. Drug him in, brought him in. Why are you teaching in his name? You need to shut up. You need to be quiet. And the response was, listen, whether it's right for us to obey God, you give that decision. But we're going to do what we know is right. And the next part of that passage blew my mind. If you get to the next part of that passage, verse 23, if your Bible is separated like mine is, it says they didn't pray for the, the persecution to go away. My Bible says they prayed for boldness. You see, their conviction and their convection, their giving of the message, had landed them with us. There were real conversions being had in the early church, and it was exploding, and it was amazing, and they were living in truth. They were loving each other well, and God was showing himself to be mighty and awesome. But there were also consequences. And instead of praying for them to go away, the disciples prayed for boldness. 
let us not turn back. Let us not yield. Glorious things will happen in conviction when we're delivering the message. We will see great and mighty things. Some will love it. Others will question it or oppose it. What is your only requirement? What is my only requirement? To be faithful. That's it. We've got the why. We've got the who. The how. Look at Matthew chapter 8 with me. Verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof of them. Keep going. Verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. A quick aside, there's a real picture of Jesus' mission in that. The centurion is the one in charge. The centurion is the one in all the power, with all the power. And yet this servant, he loves so much that he's going to come, humble himself before a Jew, and ask for help. Jesus is the one in charge. He's the one with all the power. Yet he loves you and I so much that he's going to humble himself, come, live a life we couldn't live, pay our sin debt. And on that first resurrection Sunday, he is going to come up out of that grave so that you and I may be one to his kingdom. You see a little bit of Jesus in this story. It's a good one. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Jesus already gives in. Okay, I'll come. I love what's next. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes to, uh, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. I want to underline that if you scribble in your Bibles. Jesus doesn't marvel many times. The centurion's faith he marvels at. He said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Next passage. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. The why of our mission is made up of a bunch of who's. The why of our mission is made up of a bunch of not only people, but a bunch of different kinds of people. As you and I read this story, who is the who for Jesus? The first one is the leper. The leper comes. He is the outcast. He is infected. And he is dangerous. This guy is desperate. 
And so he comes to the king. He comes to the healer. I don't know what his recollection was of who Jesus was. I don't know how far he had got along in his theological process. He had an issue and no one else could fix it. He was desperate and so he came. But as he comes, Jesus does what? He doesn't send him away. He doesn't yell at him from a distance. The Bible says that Jesus touches him. Now, according to Jewish law, that was probably the first time that man had been touched since he was diagnosed with leprosy, unless maybe from another leper. But that would have been the first time someone had been courageous enough to reach out and touch the broken, the unclean, and the dangerous. Your mission field is going to look like that. So is mine. We're living through it a little bit right now with this virus. We're living through this where we're trying to make up, uh, uh, not make up, but we're trying to live out what is true, also be wise, also try to figure out how to do it properly. And it's not a task any of us were ready for, but it is a task we have been thrust into. There are times that the things we do as Christians will come across as dangerous. Why? Because the truth is people matter, and I need to love, serve, and find them where they're at. You know, uh, a month and a half from now, we're going to celebrate Christmas and the idea of St. Nicholas. If you've ever read about the real St. Nicholas and that story, his parents were killed, but weren't killed. His parents died of disease that they caught while serving those that have it. And out of that glorious truth or out of that glorious biography we come up with Saint Nick Santa Claus and he comes in and he gives right like this guy was so touched but his parents were dead they went into a spot to look like Jesus but very few people were going the church has done that since its inception the widowed, the orphan, the sick, the needy. Your ancestors have grabbed that and run with that. When the rest of the world cast them aside, Christians stepped in. Friends, sometimes we're going to have to minister to the one that comes out like the leper, the outcast, the infected, the dangerous. Then there's the centurion, the unclean, the foreign, and even the enemy. You can have an opportunity in your life to deal with people that are adversarial to Christianity. Some of them may sit in church with you now or may sit in churches in other places that were once like that. But the centurion comes and Jesus doesn't push him away. He is actually marveled. He marvels at his faith. He is awestruck by it. And then what happens, the third piece of that passage is as the Lord goes, he comes into the house and Peter's mother-in-law is broken and stuck. She cannot get to him. She couldn't try to reach him if she could. comes to her. That is great news for a bunch of us sitting in here right now that Ephesians chapter 2 says we were dead in our sins. It is great news that we have an aggressive Savior that comes. Peter's mother-in-law couldn't reach him. She couldn't have walked to him if she wanted to, and yet he came. The one that cannot pursue finds grace. Why is made up of many who's? How about the what? The what in the world, the what is this? Matthew eight seventeen. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The what? What are we trying to do? Our lives should fulfill Scripture. Jesus' did very specifically. But our lives also should. 
When I live my life out and people see it, if they know anything of biblical principle, they should say, that looks correct, that looks right. I can't believe there's peace there. I can't believe there's comfort there. I can't believe that their church actually shows up and does all these things. Like, that looks biblical. Um, We should be fulfilling Scripture. Individually and corporately. When people come here, this should be a safe place. Unless they're wolves, and then it should be a very dangerous place. But when people come here and they are broken, they are needy, they have needs, this should be a safe, loving place. We should be fulfilling Scripture. You and I are alive, moving, kicking, breathing, and praying to prove the Word of God is true to a world of those that don't know Him. My life and your life should prove that God's Word is true. We glorify the Word, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is Jesus Christ. We glorify the Word, and we are the house of the one that inspired the Word. How about the question of timing, when and where? In this passage, we've just read verse 1, verse 5, and verse 14. He came down off the mountain. He came into Capernaum when he entered Peter's house. As you and I go, every place you have an opportunity to be a part of the mission of God. As we go, each place has a potential, is a potential where God is going to work, and each moment is a potential when God is going to work. Where is he going to work? Where are you called to go? There is divine moments where God shifts your timing and takes you somewhere else. There's also just the natural, natural current of life. You're going to wake up in the morning. You're going to get a shower. You're going to go to work. Right? That's the natural flow. Some mornings, your car will bro- be broke down. Somebody will be broke down in front of you. The traffic light is messed up. You're stuck in a spot. There's this divine ordering of what's happening. Those moments are God moments. They are God places. But also, as you and I get up, as you go to school, as you go to work, in this natural flow of your life, you have to have a job. Hopefully, if you're a Christian... You're going to pay bills, you're going to give, you're going to do all this stuff. And so you're going to go through this flow of life where you're at work and at your job and all this other stuff. And God can take any one of those moments and make them very, very miraculous. Colossians chapter 3 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. So, man, you don't know how bad my job is. I don't care. Until you find another one or you're called to another one, walk in there and do it for the glory of God. Somebody there God wants you to interact with. Why? Because he loves individuals. He loves the people that you work with. As you go, God is working. When you walk into the gas station, God is at work. That can be a very biblical moment. Do not forsake those moments. As they come this morning to play, you know, you and I have all the answers. You really do. And if we would just take time to actually believe them and live them out, number one, our lives would be a lot more peaceful. Number two, they would be a lot more powerful. They would be a lot more powerful. We have all the answers, the who, the broken, the needy, the dangerous, the dirty, and even those that can't seek it or won't seek it. That's the who. The what What are we here for? To show the glory of God by fulfilling His holy word or having His word fulfill us. I love that. We are pictures of prophecy 
We are God's word being fulfilled in front of other people, but also what happens when you and I live according to what Scripture has to say, it fulfills us. It gives your life things that your own effort or this world could never give. And you and I should be living proof to so many people that the Word of God is true. The when and where as you go, divinely directed or the natural current of what you have to do. There should be moments in your life when you can. God is here right now. That was a moment from Him. I'm going to use it to bring Him honor and to bring Him glory. Why is Why are we here? Because people matter. Persons matter. You don't have a big platform, doesn't matter. You work with one person, you work with two people, you work in a cubicle by yourself, and you're looking around and you're finding people throughout the day. Listen, persons matter. Each individual matters. And how? How are you and I to live? How are you and I to go about this mission in conviction with authority? I know it. I love it. I mean it. Let me help you have a little bit of what I've got. Does that sound prideful to you? That's exactly the mission Jesus was on. He never deviated. He knew the truth. He was the truth. He preached the truth. And those that took it, accepted it, received it, went on to live lives that you and I still talk about. Those that rejected it, as we see in Scripture, they are miserable, mean, wicked people. Hopefully they repented before they died. We know that one, at least one of the Roman soldiers, I think we're going to meet him in heaven. Why? Because his wickedness ran into the glory of God. And when he run that spear and the, and the blood and the water come out and, and Jesus was really dead, but the sky went dark and everything else was going on. He looks up and says, surely this was the Son of God. I think you and I are going to meet him in heaven. I think there's a good chance that we meet King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. As wicked as he was. We're going to meet some wicked people there some adversaries to the gospel. That is your mission field. We should live with conviction and authority. You have a lot of answers that are right. Stop hiding them because all of them are based in who Jesus is. And that's what people really need. Would you stand with me this morning as they sing and play? If you need something, you come. I need